the history of personal computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Gobble, gobble. This is a special Turkey Day release of the History of Personal Computing. I'm your host today, Jeff Salzman, and unlike tomorrow on Black Friday, you won't have to wait in line for five days in the cold, in a pup tent, on the sidewalk, hoping to get a free ticket into this podcast. Now, I think uh, David is in the buffet line filling up his plate. Oh, here he is. How's it going, David? Yeah, how about a little more? A little more of that. Could be, oh, hey. Hey, Jeff. Hey, <laughs> quit stuffing your face. What's up? Yeah, I know. I just couldn't wait. Here. Couldn't wait till tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. You're getting into the uh, wine already. I see that big glass of wine you got going on with, with the turkey, and I'm getting hungry now thinking about it. Nah, no wine yet. No turkey yet. No you know turkey. what? We're, ha- we're not having turkey this year. You're not. Yeah, confession time. Yeah, we decided to just, I don't know, change it up. So we're actually having a standing rib roast and then some crab cakes. The sounds rib roast good, sounds huh? good. I'm not a seafood person myself, but the, the rib roast, that sounds good. Yeah. I'm actually having two Thanksgiving dinners this year. Oh, really? The one, the one I had on Sunday with the family at, at the house, and then um, I guess today uh, having it at my parents' house. So I have two whole... Thanksgiving meals, because uh, we can't let all the food go to waste that we bought. We just didn't know who was going to do Thanksgiving this year, so <laughs> uh, my wife cooked up something on you know on Sunday, and we that was delicious and leftovers for three days, and and then of course uh, at, at my parents today <laughs> this this Turkey Day. So I'm going to be. St- it's getting confusing. We don't have to it pretend it's actually you know Thanksgiving as we Hey, speak. if they can bring <laughs> if they can bring Black Friday sales three days early, I can bring Thanksgiving Day dinner. Oh god, don't get me early. started on that. I'm so sick of it already. <laughs> yeah, we only have about an hour for this podcast. We might have to make that a separate episode. Oh, anyway. Um, well, we can get moving on this. Let's find out what is new with you, David. Anything new since the last episode? Well, I put three things, so I'll try to go quick. Well, so okay. the first thing I wanted to mention is I got this awesome Sega Genesis handheld, if you weren't aware of it. It's, uh, you know, the build quality isn't bad. So first off, it's only 40 bucks. And in fact, if you get it at Bed Bath & Beyond, link in the show notes, I got a $5 coupon off, so it was only 35 bucks. You know what? For $35 with 80 games, you know, it looks like a little... Um, I'm going blank here. Look, not a not a a, a, a Genesis handheld. Yeah, so it's got all it's got 80 classic Sega Genesis games. Like here's Altered Beast here. I wanted I was going to try to bring it up on microphone so you could hear it. And yeah, it's a little sounds plastic like case. Genesis sounds yeah. Right, can you hear it? Yep. You know, for thirty five dollars, it's pretty awesome. In Eighty Altered. different games. Now, granted, maybe only a dozen are, are of anything worth playing, but. I wanted to mention it. I was real excited about it. Been messing around with it some. So Bed Bath & Beyond seems to be the best deal. So check that out. I think there's a lot of that stuff going on now. And the little screen on it actually looks pretty good. Again, even though it's, you know, it's a, it's a plastic thing. Uh, the next thing I was going to mention is, you know, last show I did that little, uh, the musical sketch. I 
submitted to my company. And so I've been greenlit to do this, which is very exciting. And All also right. I'm very you nervous about it. <laughs> you didn't make the company president mad. I, here's thing. the funny thing. I don't think he doesn't know anything about it yet. He doesn't know anything about it. No, and, this is like the vice, the green light. Yeah, the vice president of marketing. She's the one that green lights it. So I can only, you know, hope that the, the guy really is okay with it. So I'm going to try to show it to him after the holidays. But, um, but anyway, that's exciting. So I've been given creative control over this thing. And it's going to be the, the big finale for the sales kickoff in early January. So that's, that's exciting. Well, hopefully you won't have to blow the dust off your resume. So I have a lot of, I have a lot of work to do. And the last thing I was going to mention is if you're a Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan like I am, then there's a link in the show notes. You definitely want to check out tomorrow uh, at noon Eastern time. And uh, there's uh, they're doing another, what's what I'm pulling up, the word Turkey Day. I never called Thanksgiving Turkey Day, but because of Mystery Science Theater. But they're doing another Turkey Day marathon. I think it's just six shows. Where normally in the past, in the 90s, it was like 24 hours. But Joel Hodgson will be doing, uh, you know, brand new little segues between them and stuff too. So that's exciting. You got to think a little fourth dimensionally here. I know I'm mixing this up. You said tomorrow. It's actually quote, oh today. <clears throat> today. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> I'm sure the listeners understand. Yeah. So they I probably already corrected you. Yeah. Noon Thanksgiving Day. So hey, what's going on? With, great. Yeah. What's, so what's going on with you then lately? Well, you know, I didn't have much to say, but then when you brought up that Sega Genesis handheld, I, I realized that uh, hey, I do have something new to say. Something on that line. Um, I picked up one of those um, Intellivision uh, retro all-in-one consoles that they're oh. selling now for about 40 bucks. Yeah, and by the way, they sell all those at, at Bed Bath & Beyond, too. And they also sell the Sega Genesis, essentially the same thing, but it's, a, it's the console version with 80 games. I saw that one where I went. I went to Dollar General. And I went there because, A, it's the closest thing to my house, and, B, Dollar General got exclusive licenses to sell oh. versions with the extra free game. Oh, really? So I have the Intellivision with the extra baseball game. I think that supports – I forget how it was. It's either it's either the original baseball game only did two-player and the new one supports just one or vice versa. And it takes real cartridges, too. No, right? it doesn't. Oh, it doesn't. No, it's, it's the exact same one you would find, say, at Toys R Us or okay. Bath and Beyond, most likely. I mean, it's a nice, attractive little. It looks like a tiny little one television with yeah. wood grain. It's really nice. I've seen it. Yeah, I was um, real tempted to want to get one of those. I also have the ColecoVision version, but I bought that at Toys R Us, and that did not have the exclusive game. Had I known better, I would have went to Dollar General and got the the. It's the same price, but you get. I think for the ColecoVision, you get um, Antarctic Adventure or something like that. It's like a, hmm. a side-scrolling platform game. And it also doesn't take, like, real cartridges? No, it doesn't. See, that's interesting. You'll... The Sega Genesis one, it takes real Genesis cartridges. Too. And that's probably how that was designed. I know yeah. one company is doing the, the manufacture and marketing of these things, but I think other companies have done the designs. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's called um, App Games. Okay, at, I, I, at games. the box is a little too far away from me now. Yeah, I got it right here, mine. Uh, I bought the ColecoVision one. I thought, you know, there's no Donkey Kong on this one. But then I heard the Intellivisionaries podcast. Um, I think he owes us five bucks for mentioning his name or mentioning his <laughs> podcast. But anyway, uh, they mentioned how there was the exclusive uh, game on, the, on all of them if you went to Dollar General. So wow. that's why I went to Dollar General to get it. So it's nice. I, I plan on picking up the, the Atari one, too. I think they still have the Atari flashback available um i might as well get a collection of those since i have the collection of the real things i well get a collection yeah. of those and have it all in one the only thing i don't like about them is that their cords are only about three feet long uh 
Um, and you know, you have a TV clear across the room. You have to put a, a patch adapter in, but you have to get one with female ends on both sides because they put the RCA male pin. No, they put the RCA, whatever it was. I had to come up with all sorts of adapters, but it was kind of a pain. Oh, she's not they, sitting right in front of it. No, you you either have to sit right at the TV like you did in the olden days. Right. Um, but it, it has a short cord. That's the only thing I don't like about them is that the cords are so short. Uh, but the Intellivision controller is just phenomenal. It, it's much better than the original, but it looks like the original. It, the, the side buttons are a lot easier to press. They're easier on your thumb. But it looks like an original uh, Intellivision controller. It's really good. Anyway, I'm taking up some time here. <laughs> when I wasn't playing those games, the only thing I've been doing is just you know continuing my, uh, my, my studies, um, my master's studies. And that, boy... That involves monitoring IP datagrams using Wireshark, tracing packets, and analyzing them down to the individual bit. I mean, we have to learn these things inside and out. I, you know, it's, I never expected to delve this deep into Internet technology. Yeah. I mean, I know how things move. I know, I, can, I know how to look for packets, but I never thought I'd have to you know, isolate and identify a bit and explain why that bit is on or off. <laughs> Doesn't sound fun. Uh, it's, it's informative, but yeah, it's, it makes you think. Anyway, so it sounds like you had a more exciting, uh, two weeks here than I did. I just been hanging around the house all day, playing games or doing school and that was it. Um, but in the meantime, people were writing us. We're getting show feedback, uh, on the website. I'll go through a couple of them here or we'll, we'll read them up. Um, we don't have... Real names for some of them, but we somebody uh, on on the uh, history of personal computing website goes by the name Mayhem Maybe <laughs> uh, was talking about the uh, Kim One episode. Mentioned that there is an Arduino-based Kim One emulator called the Kim Uno. How about that? Which was just purchased, or which can be purchased for a reasonable price. And I do Arduino stuff for hobby, and I thought this is pretty interesting. I didn't realize the Arduino can run to that level to emulate. A Kim One, so I, I got to look into this myself. He provided a um, a link to the website that talks about it. We'll put that in the show notes, and says if you can't afford the so real there's thing, an app, there's an app store for the Arduino now. Uh, no, I don't. You, well, Arduino doesn't really have an app store, but that would be cool. Um, I think you just download the uh, the source files and then you just compile them and copy them over to your Arduino. That way, when you upload them to the Arduino, I, but I think I'm gonna download it. Nah, <laughs> I won't pay anybody to download anything like that. Right. That's the nice thing about Arduino is that you don't have to pay people. You can ignore them, and then they'll learn their lesson. Don't make people pay for Arduino code because um, it's all open source anyway, so it yeah. kind of goes against the grain. But um, Mayhem maybe was mentioning if you can't afford a real Kim 1, well, then, you know, because it costs a lot on eBay, um, you can get a more... You know, you can get a feel for how the Kim one worked just by working with this um, this Kim Uno, which yeah, you can buy as a kit. But if you wanted to build it yourself, you could. There's there's information there, so you can you know put your own seven segment LEDs in and and um, get the code, put it on your Arduino, and then hook everything up, and 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 you're off. So that's kind of neat. Uh, I have to play with that sometime. And let's see, somebody else on our website goes by KLUND1, KLUND1, uh, was 
um, basically telling us it's an excellent podcast. Thank you very much. Um, and he said he found our podcast through one of the 8-Bit Atari podcasts. It doesn't mention which one. I know of two, but he doesn't mention which one. Uh, says great subject subject matter. Uh, they're a computer history buff themselves. Just finished up through the MSI episode, so I guess it has a few more to, to listen to. And uh, like some of the interesting stories that we found, um, and just talking about a book called oh, Fire, Fire in the Valley. Valley. Yeah, for great book. Know, if you want to learn more about the MSI, yeah, go for it. Uh, find that book and get it. Um, well, no, it's got it's got all oh, it has the other early stuff days. too. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. okay, if I'm not mistaken, there's a brand new that. there's a brand new edition too. Just I'm trying to read this and, and soak it in at the same time, and I said, oh yeah, he did mention this for other machines of the period, and he says he lives near. Uh, I'm assuming it's a he. If I got it wrong, I'm sorry. Um, lives near the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley, um, and. It seems like our podcast matches the walking tour there. So <laughs> yeah, you might have well, to get a licensing agreement with them. <laughs> <laughs> you um, know, it's not, that shouldn't be too hard to do, right? If we're, we're kind of picking significant machines exactly. in the story. So. And uh, some minor feedback. One of us doesn't have our microphone up loud or something like that. I think we've taken care of that since the MSI episode. But, hey, if we don't sound right, let us know. We're not... You're not going to hurt our feelings. Well, we, uh, just to mention, we had some problems early on. And uh, I think both of us, it happened to accidentally switching to our internal laptop microphones versus our better quality standalone microphones. And then um, and then exactly. we were just talking about it before this show about just trying to adjust our levels because I actually do the recording through Skype. So it tends to sort of favor me as being sort of uh, bolder in the recording. So we've adjusted it this time. So hopefully that that won't happen anymore. We'll see. And my microphone has very good uh, quieting on it, but it's also highly directional. If I turn my head one way or the mm. other, the volume changes. Yeah. So I have to work around that. So we're it's getting better. It's a studio mic. It's actually a self-contained recording microphone, but, hey, it has really good audio quality when it does pick up the audio. Oh, and Jeff, just to mention, so Fire in the Valley, they just brought out, I think it's the second, the second update. It's like the third version. Excuse me. So it just was released October 30th. Just by the way, it's a really good book. I, I have, have, I have that's the second my version. Wish list on Amazon. So I don't know if I'm going to buy. I wouldn't. I'm probably not going to buy the new one because. But anyway, it's you know, wait. it's good. Anyway, I guess if they didn't change a whole lot, you know, you wait for a few more revisions. When the uh, yeah. When oh, and I think I think Triumph of the Nerds, Triumph of the Nerds, was based on it. I'm not mistaken. Somewhere. That's where I heard it before. Yeah. Yeah. It, there, there was a relationship to a movie. Uh, yeah, now that you brought it up, I, I it's, the names in the back of my head like Fire in the Valley. I heard that before. I heard that before. I just couldn't place it, which will come up again later. I'm sure it will. Triumph of the no, it really will. This show some, some <laughs> foresight. Oh great, you're gonna let out all our secrets now. Anyway, I'll continue on. Mark O writes us. Um, <laughs> Mark O. I, I feel like I feel like I'm a self help advisor here. I got names like Mark O. You know, don't want to give out the last name. Um, Mark O said. I, I, and I've been trying to figure out what uh, Mark's comment was, but I guess he's kind of like explaining to whoever's reading the article he posted the comment on. And he's talking and about the last show. He's talking about right? the last show. Okay. Um, it, it sounds like he's just letting everybody know what he feels has happened so far, which is fine. I'll read it verbatim. It says, uh, this 
kind of wraps up the first level of computer hobbyists. If you think of computers as being made of either hardware or software, the computers in this episode will appeal to the hardware types of computer users, even with the Kim 1 being fairly hardware complete. Um, your following episodes covering the Commodore PET, the Apple IIs, and the TRS-80s will appeal to the software types of computer users. And with all those available slots in the Apple II, the hardware users still had options too. And that, that is a very good point. Um, yeah, and I think we will be discussing this in this episode too, um, where S100 people really just had to get their hands dirty. Whereas when the Apple II and the PET and TRS-80s came out, it was a turnkey ready to go. I mean, mm -hmm. truly turnkey. Uh, so that that's a good point. Some good insight uh, from Mark there. Yeah, and uh, a, lot of, a, lot of those, a lot of the early hobbyists are actually referred to as hardware hobbyists because they actually had to build their systems and they had to configure hardware to make their systems even do the most simplest things. That, you know, they even get to the point of um, bootstrapping and running basic or whatever. So I get what he's saying because um, like we're going to talk about the Apple II, you know, once you got to the consumer type of machines, now you, you you got more and more of the machine, the hardware became invisible to the user, like we were talking about before the It abstracted the show. it from hardware yeah, and software. Like, which... like, so I mentioned like myself being a big Mac enthusiast when I, you know, found the Macintosh and it became my first love of computers and stuff and I really started using it. You know, hardware in a way kind of disappeared and it was all about the interface and all about the software. Mostly, because obviously all of a sudden you had this new piece of hardware called a mouse, which, you know, made you interface with it. But And the magic box just makes it work. <laughs> right. It's just an engine now to your, you know, exactly. creative it's been, goals. It's been abstracted probably, you know, 20 different layers since, you know, back since the S100 days. And one more piece of feedback. I'm going to jump to this. Uh, help keep us, you know, from going too far over time. Spitfire. Uh, yeah, Spitfire 1500. Um, we forgot that one, I believe, on the last episode. Right. So we're putting it in here. It's, it's and, from like two, almost a month ago. So, And assuming uh, a, a guy again, uh, he says, Hi, fellow podcaster, uh, first-time listener here. Heard about the cast from the host of Vintage Volts. Hey, that's me. I got a plug. Um, enjoy the show. They enjoy the show so far. Did a few retrocomputing episodes and sales, steering heavily towards a TI-99 slash 4A. And I... I got I to gotta go listen to them because I, I kind of have a thing for the TI-99. Um, gave us a shout-out on two worthy video game podcasts, no names mentioned. So we'll have to just listen to them all until we hear those. Hmm. Um, two worthy video game podcasts. Oh, the thread on Atari Age. Here I am thinking it was put on a podcast, but it was on a thread. And I got to get back to Atari Age myself uh, and read because there's so much fun stuff there. Um, the go-to place for all retro gaming, computing, and pinball podcasts. So anyway, thank you very much, Spitfire, and everybody else who wrote in so far. If we forgot you, we'll, we'll figure out where we missed, and we'll get them in the future shows. Hey, just a bit of trivia, Jeff. I looked up on a hunch, because uh, I looked up Spitfire 1500, his uh, name, and uh, the Spitfire 1500 was the last incarnation of the Triumph Spitfire from 1974 to 1980. So the original Spitfire was a Mark I from 1962. Spitfire plane, car. So a little bit. Car, plane, yeah. English plane, car company, by plane. a British Leyland who went on to make the MG and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so. But Triumph, you know, the company Triumph. Triumph fan. Yeah. So cool looking car. Like I'm a classic VW Bug fan. All right. That's cool. Uh, some very good feedback. Thank you very much, everybody. 
So, on to the show. Our podcast is your bi-weekly guide in both audio and on the web to the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. But just what is a personal computer these days? That's a good question. Ah. As it continues to evolve... So are we? So we're covering the significant devices here one by one. Take it, David. <laughs> we wanted to create a unique new podcast about old computers and their history, so we generally discuss them in a date order within tiers. Tiers are in reference to the tiers of personal computing, which have evolved some in the last few years. In the past, they have been the desktop, laptop, and smartphone, though now they are characterized by the laptop, tablet, and smartphone. In each episode, we typically cover two systems, plus highlight related eBay auctions to gauge current values and collectability. And we approach each system like that of a museum tour guide. First, we give you the basics of the system, along with its history, just like a placard for physical museum displays. Then we further elaborate, giving you more detail on the stories which bring the computers back to life. This podcast supplements the blog, and our blog adds value to the podcast, so please visit it. All right. And we're evolving. We so. are evolving, just like computers have evolved. <laughs> uh, this episode has evolved. We are basically done with the S100, I believe. Yeah. We are now hitting the personal computer trifecta, a major paradigm shift in computing. Mm -hmm. So while, while the many S100 systems David and I have discussed in the early episodes of the History of Personal Computing podcast were formidable computers on their own, there came a time when Joe Public was noticing everything going on around them and found... You know, Joe found himself hoping for a convenient turnkey style of home computer. Yes, there were turnkey S100 systems, but they weren't necessarily convenient. Joe did not want to deal with computers by having to work under the hood from time to time. In fact, when it came to the marketability of computer systems, the following philosophy was currently in play. You can have affordability, expandability, or convenience. <laughs> Pick any two. So what happened was, and another term, was the holy trinity of personal computing. The year was now 1977, and the time, the time had come when certain users wanted computers to simply be there for them, ready to face their purpose head-on without even a second thought as to why or how they worked. This market demand was met by the first real consumer computers, the out-of-the-box micros. This year ushered in three of what were arguably the first personal computers that could be purchased, brought home, taken out of their boxes, set up, and then something productive performed with them right away. At this point in time, two large corporations and one small company with serious investors started to notice a growing trend in personal computing and felt that now was the time to invest in a computer product for the home. These three separate organizations successfully led the way toward this achievement. All three found a significant level of success, but only one of them still exists to this day, and that was and is an amazing achievement. Well, one company wanted to expand the capabilities of a new and proven low-cost CPU. A second computer was designed by and for a well-established consumer and hobbyist electronics store. And then a third organization, which we will discuss in this episode, transcended the homebrew hobbyist scene and commercialized a solid, easy-to-use computing platform based on a popular prototype of their own design. And that third company was Apple Computer, and in June 1977, they brought the Apple II to market. In our, in our next shows, we'll discuss the competitors and the other two Trinity computer, uh, consumer computer products, the Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 1, which was announced in August 1977, and the Commodore PET, which released in October of that year. But for now, it's the Apple II. 
The Apple II computer was one of the first home computers that incorporated all of the basic functionality of earlier micros like the S100 systems into a single space-saving case. Not only did Apple put the CPU and RAM together, sharing space on a single motherboard, but you also had additional hardware that provided the basic programming language through a built-in ROM interpreter. For $1,298, the public was able to get a computer that booted up directly to basic where users could start typing in programs for themselves or type in programs from source code copy that was printed in a magazine or newsletter. And speaking of typing, the Apple II also included a built-in keyboard. There was no more need for an external terminal for typewritten input. In order to remain compact in size, the Apple II did not include a built-in monitor. Although it was best to buy the dedicated monitor made for the Apple II because it had a crisper resolution, it, it also had an NTSC composite compatible video output. If your television set offered a composite video input, you could hook up the Apple II directly to your TV instead. And I guess most didn't, did they? Uh, or not a lot back didn't. in the late 70s. It was probably a high-end video file type thing to have composite input, hmm. uh, but it was still possible to do so. Yeah. And as, you know, as TVs with... Or you just get an RF modulator for real cheap and hook it up. Right, right. Oh, yeah, with the, the antenna jacks. That's right. Yep. And uh, one last major feature the Apple II had on board was a simple storage option. All that was needed to load and save programs was an audio cable and a standard cassette recorder. Portable cassette recorders at the time were affordable and common, making it a popular means of saving, loading, and even selling commercial software. Another thing Apple did with the uh, Apple II was to solidify a RAM standard, also practiced by many future computer makers of the day. While some of the S100 systems may have started with only 1K or 2K RAM or whatever amount they felt like installing, Apple provided 4K to start, with the option of adding more simply by modifying the quantity and type of RAM chips on the motherboard. No expansion card was needed to do a minor RAM upgrade, though anything larger than 16K would require a RAM card to be inserted in one of the Apple II expansion slots. So it could do up to 6 uh, 16k on board just by finagling the chips you didn't have to buy whole boards and stuff like that it made it a little easier to do upgrades yeah you know and um and also in, in uh researching the apple II for this podcast jeff i mean i think we both discovered maybe some things i guess we kind of knew but we hadn't really thought about just how advanced the apple II really was you know in comparison to the machines we were discussing you know in the last podcast yeah because everything's all together in one yeah one case i mean it wasn't that the other ones couldn't do it it's just that what this had built in and what it consolidated and so on yeah it, it changed the way people thought about personal computers and just took things where you didn't have to worry about it anymore they were you know sort of like taking away the crank of the earliest cars where you just turn the key right turn the key, right. you know push a button and it starts up but any but jeff something you did not mention let's not forget about a major major difference between the apple II and its two main consumer competitors it was the only one that had color graphics. That's true. But as you mentioned, I think, what was it, $1,298 just for the CPU? Am I, is that right? I want to now say that well, and be for, wrong. That, that was the original selling price. I think that was just the, just the main box. You got, you got your main box, yeah. Yeah. You hook it up to your TV and your, your, your monitor, and you're ready to go with it, though. So it, it certainly cost more, and, and in, in both cases, double what you know the Commodore PET and the TRS-80 TRS cost. But full color was pretty compelling for a computer in 1977. 
This single feature was the most important upgrade that Steve Wozniak wanted to accomplish over the original Apple One single board computer. So now uh, let's go into a little bit of history about Apple, and I don't want to spend too much time on it since I'm going to assume most of our listeners are pretty familiar with the story of Apple and the two Steves. But, um, but here we go. So the two principals here in the story are Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. Wozniak was almost entirely responsible for the early success of Apple from a hardware standpoint, while Jobs was the driving force behind Apple's marketing success early on, then for its design and business success for the late, uh, from the late 1990s to his death in 2011, which after I wrote this, I do want to mention, of course, he was high, you know, it was very much, uh, even though Steve Wozniak did all the design work, it really was the case of the Apple II, which was very important. That was Steve Jobs pushing that. And that had a lot to do with the success of the Apple II. Yeah, it's comfortable to use. So, good yeah. design on that. So, Steve Wozniak's father was an engineer at Lockheed, and he certainly inspired and influenced his son's curiosity for electronic projects. By the mid-1970s, Steve's biggest dream was to own his own computer. After realizing that he couldn't afford a computer and having become a very good engineer himself, in 1975, at the age of 24, he developed, he developed the prototype computer that eventually made him famous. Steve Wozniak single-handedly designed the circuit board hardware and operating system for the Apple I. He also wrote the earliest basic. Steve Jobs, who was five years younger, was already friends with Wozniak, and at Jobs' urging, the two were, two were capitalizing on the sale of digital blue boxes, a device to make free long-distance phone calls. Jobs was impressed with the Apple I, and he worked to help Wozniak impress other members of the Palo Alto-based Homebrew Computer Club. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like the blue box, Jobs wanted to sell the Apple I as a fully assembled printed circuit board. He wanted to make it a product. Wozniak did not really want to do this, but Jobs convinced him that they could at least break even and tell their grandkids that they had had their own company. They both sold some of their prized possessions. Wozniak's HP Scientific Calculator and Jobs' Volkswagen van were, were two notable ones, which raised them $1,300. And with that, they purchased and assembled the first boards in Jobs' bed, Jobs's bedroom and later in his garage. Apple Computer was formally established on April 1st, 1976, with Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and Ronald Wayne as partners. Wayne soon pulled out, and Apple Computer Incorporated was founded on January 3rd, 1977, and this is important, with multi-millionaire Mike Markula providing essential business expertise and funding of $250,000. He was the Shark Tank guy of the day, right? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, that made it all possible right there. But that's how impressed he was, you know, with the Apple One, and then even just prototypes of Apple II that Wozniak was working on. This was the company and the team which brought the Apple II to market success. So uh, just a couple of notes here is uh, if, you know, there, there's, there's lots of books out there about the history of Apple, specifically about lots of them about Steve Jobs, of course. And then uh, I was about Steve Wozniak is really good. But I want to recommend two uh, movies, documentaries. And one first is called The Triumph of the Nerds, mentioned earlier. And I think it's an excellent documentary. And it's not just only about Apple, but the entire early computer revolution. Um, but it has a good portion about Apple. And you can watch it free online. So there's Is that the one with Robert X. Cringely in it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's actually very good. And it's uh, very entertaining. It's well done. And it's, you know, and it it's, is, and it's, yeah. It's, as far it's as I know, not, it's reasonably accurate. It's not PBS-style, you know, boring yeah. droning. It's some good stuff there. And it's, you can watch it free online. There's a link. And then also Pirates of Silicon Valley, which was made by the TNT Network in 1996. And in my opinion, it's the best 
Hollywood treatment still of both Apple and Microsoft stories. And I would say it's about 85% accurate. So, Which I guess isn't bad. It could have been worse than 85 No, right. Especially compared to the the last movie here, you know, and uh, yeah, which I didn't think was all that great, frankly. And that's the one with Noah Wiley and... Um, exactly. And the yeah. guy from uh, Pretty in Pink or something? Or, oh, from, yeah. And what's the other movie? They stay in, like, detention? Well, he was also the kid on um, the original <laughs> uh, National Lampoon Vacation. Exactly. Yeah. The detention. Why am I forgetting this stuff? <laughs> it must be the pressure of standing in front of the microphone. Well, there's here. so much out there um, that you can read about Apple's history. And, of course, Apple II. The there's Breakfast a, Club. Yeah, there you Anthony go. Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. And, he, yes. and they're both great in it. It's really a good movie. I like it. Yeah, you can get a... a you can basically get a warm feeling of that's kind of how it went down. So yeah, the 85% accurate. I, I agree with that. There's more, you, know, you, there, you can always find the answer in books, other books mm-hmm. to fill in the details, but if you want an entertaining level uh, overview of it, Pirates of Silicon Valley is a good movie to see. You know, just a, just another quick thing to mention about it. What's interesting about Pirates of Silicon Valley. So it aired in 1996. And of course that was just when Steve Jobs had returned to Apple. And Apple was, you know, not doing great at all, even though, you know, there was enthusiasm about Steve Jobs coming back. But still, a lot of the tech news people or anything didn't think he's going to be able to save them. And so it sort of takes that... Uh... Uh, anyway, you'd have to see the sort of the the twist at the end, how they portray it, you know, and, and that's where it stops. And of course, watching it nowadays, we know what happened. So it kind yep. of kind of puts an interesting you know take on it yeah I, I didn't realize it was that old i i only watched it about uh eight or nine years ago um but anyway let's get back to the apple II. there's uh if you want something to do during this weekend if you're not <laughs> shopping yeah watch triumph of the nerds and rent pirates of silicon valley uh, unless it's on netflix um oh it's not by the way i looked i looked at oh, amazon wonderful. prime and netflix so but I oh, found boy. two sources where you can watch them. Okay. What? Well, you have the link, so we'll, we'll put that in, right? Where you can at least uh, find out more information about it. Anyway, um, back to the Apple II. The Apple II had a series of updated and improved models. It wasn't just the original Apple II. And many years of market success and profitability for Apple, it really worked well for them. It was a great machine. It boosted them. But it wasn't until the late 80s that the sales of the Macintosh started to equal Apple II sales. And really not until the early 1990s, until the Mac dominated Apple's margins, the Apple II was followed by the Apple II Plus, and then the Apple IIe, IIc, IIgs, talk about having color in a computer, and IIc Plus. I don't remember the IIc Plus myself. Um, The Apple II Plus was also the first computer to make a significant inroad into the educational market when Apple partnered with Bell & Howell to sell a self-badged black case version of the computer to schools. I've only seen the Bell & Howell version in pictures. Oh, really? Personally. Not oh, personally. okay. VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet, was also the first killer app. And guess what it ran on? Um, mm-hmm. The Apple II. Uh, that also boosted it, too, uh, into the market. VisiCalc was the first program available for a microcomputer that became responsible for sales of an entire Apple II system. I mean, people buy a whole system just to run the software. I mean, right. That's good marketing. That's good uh, sell-up. <laughs> it also played a role in, a major role in the success of the Apple II and for legit- legitimizing personal computers as business tools. 
And who needed color for that, right? IBM said, you don't need color for that. And they ran with it for about 10 years, right? (laughs) Oh, you know, that's interesting because, you know, the next sort of killer app was Lotus 123, another great spreadsheet, but for the IBM PC. But but I wonder, yeah, most people were probably running monochrome, weren't they? Yeah, and you could do that with VisiCalc. Yeah. I I still do it today with Windows and, you know, Microsoft Excel. I don't really add much color to stuff. I just do the numbers. When you had monochrome on, on IBM PCs, was it, and maybe it was the same way with 8-bit computers. Wasn't it slightly more, like, uh, had different shades of monochrome, though? Yeah. It's not grayscale, but, you know. It, it, I think they did, like, hashing. It was still, I think, pure monochrome was either a bit was on or a bit was off. Yeah. But the resolution was higher. The image was crisper. Yeah. Because monochrome monitors had a smaller dot pitch. And it would, yeah, they would do shading by using cross hashes hatches and lines and stuff like that to simulate an effect but it, it got the job done because you were going to print them and they were going to look the same way black and i remember white. how much i liked the amber display the m deck amber display i thought was the greatest <laughs> we should have a whole episode oh, on over the green amber green and white displays of all these computers yeah as we go over them yeah <laughs> maybe we should just have a poll it's it's poll everybody what they think is the best color if it's not if it's a monochrome monitor what's the best color amber green or white uh, we'll just float that out there and that that sort of basically wraps up the the, the details of the apple II. there's so much more in line we could the, talk about there is and, so and much of everything there's so much we can bring up but there's probably so much that we can also repeat that because the apple II is significant enough you know we could end up just repeating what everybody else says so i, I think we covered it pretty good for everybody i think uh People generally get an idea of what's going on um, with the Apple II and how much it was a major paradigm shift in personal computing at the time. Now, if for some chance you don't have an Apple II of your own and want to try an Apple II or you want to see what it was like, you can do it through emulation. We haven't done emulation in a while on these shows, and mm. I'm happy to get back into um, suggested emulation for these Systems. Well, because emulation is mostly about software emulation. And of course, when we're in the S100 machines, they're all the same pretty much when it comes to that. Yeah, they were all running CPM but... basically. And yeah. you get that. But now you get to try out uh, different stuff. And I've played with, um, I'm going to go over a couple emulator, emulators that are available. I'm not going to go into too much detail. Um, I've played with them myself and I'll probably do a write-up on the website, you know, documenting some getting started information on these emulators, but the uh, first emulator I want to talk about is called KEGS, K-E-G-S, which stands for Kent Emulated GS. And basically, it's uh, an emulator for the uh, Apple II GS, which is basically their highest profile Apple II with all the colors and all the sounds and stuff like that. But the GS also runs like a basic Apple II, so it'll run all the old software. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. Um, But KEGS will give you a turnkey running software emulator. Well, minus the ROMs, you have to get your own um, operating system ROMs uh, copies to put them on there. But you can work with bootable disks that are all software files. And it'd be just like you have the real Apple II GS in front of you or you run it as an Apple II. And I believe it is available for many different operating systems, Windows, Linux, uh, 
and OS ten or OS X. How do you say that, David? Is OS, how, oh, how do the Apple people say it? Oh, I, I usually say OS ten. OS ten. Okay. Yeah. I have to remember that. Um and another one out there is called Virtual Apple. And I think this we one We both found were, that one. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Virtual Apple's website looks better. Um really it's full of color. Uh and it shows you some sample graphics. Uh, the kegs is basically black and white letters. Uh, there's some details. There's some information. There's some links. But the the virtual Apple II application, which actually it's it's ready to play on, I, which the is browser. amazing to me. And you know, I remember the first time I saw this. I believe it was the same site. It was back in like 2006, and it worked. I think it only yep. worked on Windows back then, though. So you won't even have to. Well, it could have been just the the browser at the time. Yeah, it was limited Maybe to a browser. Safari couldn't handle it, um, or didn't have as much of the back end, like or maybe the Java or whatever wasn't working right. Whatever the case may be. I just wish all emulators, and hopefully in the future, they could all just be browser based like that. You just browse to a site, and then now you can just check it out. That it's would be actually so great. There. I think there is a. You've heard me before saying about the. Uh, um, mess emulator mm -hmm. for a lot of systems and as much as i like mess because it puts a lot of emulators in one spot it does require a little s100 s100 ish behind the scenes under the hood type configuration to get things to work so you want to go there if you don't mind getting your hands dirty but things like this virtual apple is a great thing you can go to it fire up a web browser and you can start running yeah it's amazing it really is Picking the disc in, you know, alphabetically, uh, you hit, like I hit the M and here's uh, Mabel's Mansion. If I click on that, it'll run Mabel's Mansion on an Apple II emulator in my browser and it'd be just like I had the Apple in front of me. Yeah, it's crazy. And those are the two that um, I know about. You added one that I guess it's just for the Mac called Sweet 16. Yeah, because this is one that I'm somewhat familiar with frankly i haven't done a lot with it in a number of years but i was messing around with it at one point so it looks like it hasn't been updated in a while so i so honestly, I'm, yeah i'm I like not sure if, if it would even work now i have um yosemite which is 10.10 .10. so this is it requires 10.6 um later oh no it also has 10.4 and 2.5 but yeah it's a 2gs um emulator so, okay which you're still if you get everything configured right you should still run as an apple II. Yeah, and uh, it's by Eric Shepard, who um, I don't know if I've ever met him in person, but I'm very familiar with his name and him. He's a huge Apple II guy for the longest time. I know he's involved with uh, Kansas Fest and, and you know the Apple II uh, world. But um, anyway, it's just another option that you could run You know, that's not browser-based that I know I've heard lots of good stuff about, and I've played around with it a little bit. And we'll find that a lot of these systems from the, the trifecta on are mostly well emulated so you'll be able to experience these a lot more with a lot of variety than mm -hmm. you did with the s100 systems so um i am i am going to write up more documents you know getting started on lots of emulators because i love working with emulators I, i'd rather work with the original hardware if i could but emulators are are nice just right. to get a good feel for the system without a whole lot of um investment yeah exactly and hey, or repair or repair yeah, <laughs> yeah. well speaking of investments if you do want to invest in buying an apple II, i'll segue this as best as i can you would probably go to ebay and uh to help give you an idea of how much stuff like this would cost 
David will start with a couple of eBay picks that he found, which will give us an idea on what these things are going for and what kind of options you can get with them. Yeah, so I I started off looking for original Apple IIs, you know, which is sort of like what the show's about, even though we're kind of covering Apple II all, all together. So these are both uh, recently um, ended auctions. This particular one ended in the end of September, and so it says Apple II, A2S1, Revision 3, Matching Box. Anyway, excellent repair. Oh, okay. That was the deal with this one, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And yeah. it went for how much? $1,095, but it's an original. Could it uh, be the low serial number? I, I Well, I think it's because it has the box which matches the serial number. It's a real box for the unit. Wow. And it's in generally, you know, it's discolored, but it's solid and it's in decent shape. Well, yeah, it's um, discolored in the dark. The box, I mean, is discolored. I'm, I'm going back to it's got the paddles oh, okay. in here, but it's got the packing material. The, the computer itself looks to be in pretty nice condition. Bone packing. Yeah, okay. And, uh, doesn't really have any addition, a lot of additional stuff in there, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't give a, what does it say here? It doesn't boot. So the screen shows vertical bars and sometimes it shows random characters. So, you know, probably someone who reasonably knows what they're doing with these sort of things probably could fix it. Pushing chips in would probably fix it. If it yeah. was stored, like if it was stored, like the box shows, it was mm -hmm. sitting on its side, maybe, you know, over time, gravity, temperature, heat, slowly pop the chips out. Yeah, and sometimes just uh, you know letting it just keep trying it, <laughs> turning it off, turning it on, you know, letting it warm up and just messing around with it can get it to work. Not yeah, reliably. It's, it's not an Apple three, so you can't drop it three inches to get it to work. So you know, nope. I, I, frankly, I haven't looked at original Apple twos in a while. A thousand ninety five dollars is um, since it doesn't boot. That might be sort of a high end price. What do you think if it? If I it, think it's high end, but it has the box, which I wouldn't care about. But some people like with collecting toys or any other sort of collectibles, they care about that sort of thing. See, for me, it's something like that. The box is cool. If somebody gave it to me, I'll take it. Yeah. But a lot of that stuff, but I, I wouldn't pay extra for it. I end up moving into a Rubbermaid container and in all those little silica gel tablets that get in modern electronics mm -hmm. stuff. I save those. I'll throw a couple silica gel tablets in the Rubbermaid container to keep the moisture down. So just, you know, with, I can't say I did that much research, but yeah, I'm going to move on to the other one. But I would say yeah, it's a little bit of a high price, but the, the box kind of throws a curveball in there. Because I would think if it worked in really great condition, maybe with a few other things, uh, you know, an Apple II original is maybe worth around $1,000. But having said that, here's the other one. It also ended into September. Uh, it sold for $510. And it's an original Apple II with extras, and it works. So, RCA monitor with the white, white yeah. screen. I guess that's color. So it's um, a clean Apple II system. You know, it's got the serial number. I don't have a real appreciation for that. I know some people do, so I don't know if it's really... Oh, here's the deal with this one, though, which kind of makes it interesting. It, the motherboard was replaced in 1980, and Apple okay. soft ROMs were installed along with a 16K language card. The keyboard was replaced at one point with a 2-plus keyboard. Oh, so there you go. It's not original. Of Really, a little bit of acid rot or something on the underside. So like basically, it. it uh, you know what? That's kind of interesting that they're saying that, because they're basically saying that the motherboard is replaced, the keyboard is replaced, and that and all, it basically like it's it's an Apple II Plus. But what would stop somebody from finding an, an original Apple II case top and just sticking it on an Apple II Plus then and saying that they replaced the motherboard and all that? I guess that's always possible. And this one has uh. RF uh, modulator 
Oh, it's got the serial arc. number. Oh, so I don't know. 15014, so it's looks like it's an so, early serial number. So someone <laughs> who's really knowledgeable would have to know whether that is truly an original Apple II serial yeah. number. Maybe it is the A2S1. That's also a monochrome monitor. But it's, it's the same size that you would have normally seen at the time. It sits yeah. off to one side on top of the Apple II body. Yeah, and fits uh, the disk drive the up there. Drives. But anyway, so there's there's yeah. a number of them on there. And obviously, there's tons of Apple II Pluses and two E's and, and You found else. some pricey ones. I thought I found some that were a bit cheaper. Yeah, you did. Uh, I don't know how or why. Uh, the first one I found says, Super Clean and Scarce Apple II Plus Model A2S1048. Um, I don't know what the 048 means. It means it has 48K RAM. Uh, and this one, no discoloration. It's got the nice light color. Which one of these are the ones when they painted them? Was the Apple II Plus a painted case, or was that? Plus? Oh, they all were. Yeah. Okay. That's why they started discolor. And this one looks like he's using an aftermarket RF modulator. I recognize the module. Looks like he took it right off. Of well, I think they weren't technically painted. I think they they put coloring in the plastics okay. or something, and then that that reacts to um, not infrared, but. What's the other type oh, of light? Well, for the ones the that are plastic, that yeah, there, there's there's a fire retardant in the plastic ones, and that that changes color. Um, then you start looking into things like retro bright to clean up. But I thought some of the apples were actually painted, so the plastic, you know, you don't see the plastic part that would change color. The paint holds its color. Hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, this one one hundred and thirty nine dollars, and. Super clean, no damage, no scratching, no dings. Power's on fine. You get everything you see pictured. Um, so it, it's, it was cheaper. It even has a couple cards in it. These are some interesting cards, too. I'm trying to look and see what they are. I would say, I mean, $140 with free, sh free shipping. Go for it. Yeah. Well, That's a good for a price. I, I don't know if it's a bargain. But it's not bad, though. Amer American Microware 2 Plus 16. I guess that's extra memory. Yeah, uh, I think so. 16K card. A lot of American microwear cards. I'd or it's never... like a language card is what they used to call it. Okay, I heard of those. I just don't know exactly what they do. Um, I think it was necessary, if I'm not mistaken. Modem to, card? To take it up to 64K. Because you could take it up to 48K on the board. All right, and then add it just a bit more. Yeah, is that right math? And then that would take it up to the full 64K. Here's a smart term card. So I guess that's an 80-column card, right? Yep, I think so. Oh, wait, smart okay. term? I think that might be, that's like a for communications. Okay, because it looks like it has a composite. Oh, wait, smart term. I'm trying to look at the ends on it. They're RCA. I wonder if it's a pass-through for, see, I thought I have a, a terminal card for one of my apples that I've acquired over the years, and I thought it just goes to 80 column, and they call it a term card hmm. of some sort. But with the RCA connectors, and at the time, that leads me to believe that it's composite out of some sort, um, or whatever the case may be, uh, you get a fair number of cards. I, $139, I guess that's pretty good. Um, I mean, it's better than 500 Yeah. or 1000 <laughs> if you want one. That guy says it turns on, it runs, it looks pretty, doesn't come with a box, and it's you know only about 15% uh, uh, you know, of... The boxed one, I I would go for this one, even though they did everything short of putting L uh, L at at K for look 
on the uh, title. They just said uh, scarce. Look. Yeah. <laughs> what eBay marketing. And just to verify that, uh, or just to prove that you can get them fairly cheap, my other auction is for uh, an Apple II with two disk drives. It's a little dirty, but it comes with the disk drives, and I would assume it comes with a controller card in it too. And it's not just the disk drives aren't just sitting there to look pretty. Uh, 114.55 is what it sold for. Eight bids, $18 shipping from wherever it was from because it does it just says item location united states and that's a little broad yes yeah, so i was just doing a quick i did this time i did a search for apple 2 plus on vintage computing under vintage computers and mainframes sold so yeah. yeah so it looks like apple 2 plus is i'd say you know 120 dollars is roughly a going price for one that works in good good condition this one's got two disk drives this one's got a um low serial number it says and has original box with with a drive it's 271 here's another one with like 168 okay so that's the difference the difference between an apple 2 and yeah. an apple 2 plus and then here's one with the original box and zenith display and disk drive 299 575 with one of the cpm card in it that's kind of interesting so the apple 2 is technically inferior to the 2 plus oh, yeah. definitely but it's, if it's absolutely original the collector's value is what drives the price. Uh, yeah, because it's, it's okay. The first, well, that makes sense now. You know, it's a, it's the closest thing to an Apple One as far as collectability of you know earliest Apple. Okay. So. You're the Apple guy, actually. So I. Well, not so your... much an Apple Two, but um, yeah. So it's kind of a range there. I, but I would say, yeah, anywhere one that works in decent condition, maybe the disc driver two, maybe with a box. Here's one with a box for 180 dollars. So, you know, geez. The boxes aren't all that rare. And then, it, so here's a 2C Plus for $200. The only difference in the 2C Plus is they had a three and a half inch disk drive instead of five and a quarter, which so, really wasn't real practical for a lot of Apple II people. Is that what it was? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody, you know, going to five, five and a quarter, you can get an external three and a half inch drive for those. Uh, so I have a, I have a 2C and I have a Laser 128. Both of them have the, uh, a five and a quarter inch drive and i think i have an external uh three and a half inch drive uh, uh, applied engineering is that yeah i think mm -hmm. that's the name of yeah, it it's a name the manufacturer i know they did some stuff for um for the amiga commodore amiga for apple emulation they actually created a high density disc for the amiga yeah they did a um, lot for memory upgrades too okay for, uh, max and and uh i think two gs's at least i remember so i, I guess to sum up the valuations um, they're, they're out there. Their prices var vary wildly depending if they have a plus or not, or an E or not, or yeah. platinum or not on it, um, or even the GS on the side of it. But they're not hard to find if you want. If you just want to do Apple II and have a piece of hardware for yourself, you can get by with the Apple II Plus or Apple II E and be able to run most of the stuff off of real oh, yeah. disks. And I think and, if you really... And not um, put a whole lot of money into it. If you decide I'm definitely going to get one, I mean, first thing to do is start in your own community and, you know, look on, just bang on Craigslist for a while looking around. And then, uh, yeah, I think if you, if like, say you wanted to Apple, probably a 2E would be one of the best things. If you wanted a classic style that could really do everything. Yeah, that wasn't quite as advanced as 2GS. I mean, I think if you watched it carefully, you should be able to get one for under $100. That works. 
Yeah, I agree. That, that makes that makes sense. I got mine over 15 years ago. Somebody gave it to me because he needed to clean out his garage, and I haven't touched them till last year, and they worked. Well, one of them, the, the power supply capacitor made magic smoke, but it still ran. Um, it just smelled funny for a while. And that's another thing you got to watch out for these when you buy them, um, is their power supplies are notorious for popping a capacitor if they've been sitting for a while and it creates all this smoke that comes out. My understanding is it doesn't prevent it from operating and it's kind of spooky and scary when you see all that smoke come out of the Apple II you just bought that hasn't been turned on in years. Yeah. Um, but power supplies, you can get replacements for them. Not too bad of a price or what I've been doing and so far hasn't been a problem is just leaving that part popped to just get over the smoke and the smell and then you're good to go. I don't recommend that, but yeah, I, I haven't heard any stories where it actually damaged the Apple II motherboard. It's just, if anything, the power supply just doesn't work as well if it's, you know, if the problem continues. So, and people might correct me on that, but that's what I found with the ones that I have. I guess that's about it. Did we I go long? Doing... I don't think so. No, we didn't. I think we're just under, uh, if I read the if I close out this show fast enough, I think oh, we'll get it right under 60 minutes. Now, no, then you have to put the uh, opening music on, so that'll just blow that anyway. So we might as well go another 30 minutes. You find 30 <laughs> minutes of opening and trailing music? <laughs> we got preparations, Thanksgiving preparations to do. That's true. Anyway, um, people probably listened to this after they had their big meal. They're pro they probably fell asleep just when we started talking about, about Steve. Uh, whichever Steve, you pick a Steve. Um, anyway... Show 8, the next show coming up, will be released on Friday, December the 12th. We'll be discussing the Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 1. Find our evolving guide and all show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. Send feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com because we really would love to receive your email or audio comment. Please send us your high-quality photos of the machines we covered. We are looking forward to featuring them on our website. Lastly, tell someone about us, please. Write a review on iTunes or help us spread the word with Facebook, Google+, or Twitter. This is not lastly, uh, though. We put another yeah, note. <laughs> perhaps you're, the, you're sneaking a note in on me, making me sound like a doofus. Perhaps you're in a specialty discussion group. Tell them about our show. Do and it now. Lastly, again... Uh, <laughs> Remember to send us your Christmas stories. Yeah, your um, first computer, the special one you got at Christmas. Yeah, or whatever whatever gift holiday. We like Christmas. We like it the time with Christmas. So if it's a Christmas, uh, Hanukkah, or whatever, um, it, it's, a, it's an interesting story for us, and we want to share that story if you don't mind telling us that story. And you know what, you know what Jeff? We might as well just say it on the show. We're going to be reaching out to some of our uh, fellow computer history podcasters so if any of you guys and gals are listening we want your stories too your podcasters you could talk you can record do it send it to us we're gonna make a whole show of these yeah well they just probably heard this and took us off our friends list yeah we're gonna reach out to you so be ready all right this is your warning uh anyway that's it for this episode that's have it. you given thanks for that old computer today <laughs> All right. That's a wrap, David. Bye-bye. Happy Turkey Day. Gobble, gobble.